Hey, it's Imogen from Squarepeg. As part of any investment process, we go through a pretty intense period of due diligence. A critical part of this is becoming well-versed in the problems that the founder is solving. Usually, this is through research or talking to prospective customers or experts in the sector. But occasionally, on a particularly niche or misunderstood topic, we use a global expert network to reach the brightest minds on the planet. And in 2019, we had a doozy. The brief we shared was that we wanted to meet the best minds in the world on quantum mechanics, quantum control engineering, and quantum sensing. And all of the companies we briefed suggested one person, Professor Michael Biasic, the founder and CEO at Q-Control, which was funny because that was the company we were diligencing. It's not often that you can say with confidence that an individual is the world's best at something, but with Michael, we can. We led Mike's $15 million Series A round later that year, and this podcast episode is how Q-Control came to be. And while quantum computing is important to this story, it's not Mike's only love. Because not only is he a world expert on quantum computing, a cutting-edge technology, he's also besotted with an almost obsolete technology. Horology. Let's start here. Meet Mike. Maybe for your audience, the, the best place to start is to explain what horology is. Horology is timekeeping, but in particular, we use this to talk about watches, mechanical watches typically that are generally considered luxury items. You know, there are a lot of links and there are a lot of reasons why it fascinates me and why I so love this field. Some of them are, are a little technical, but to me, there, there's much more. There's this really interesting mix in horology, not all horology, but in the kind of set in which I operate and roll, which is, it's called high horology. So these are mechanical timepieces where the regulation, the timekeeping is maintained by a mechanical system. So it's like a miniature pendulum inside the watch, as opposed to a quartz watch, which uses an electrical circuit to do the regulation. You know, in a sense, these are these are tiny computers where the computer program is built out of metal. A lot of these watches, aside from keeping the time, will be what are called chronographs, or it's a stopwatch, or they will be calendars, right? And in fact, often they'll be perpetual calendars. So a perpetual calendar is a calendar that knows how many days are in each month, it knows when it's a leap year, it knows what the moon phase is, so it keeps lunar time and sidereal time. And you know, what that means in many cases is that these watches will know, if set appropriately at the beginning, you know, what day of the week, what moon phase, what month, et cetera it is for like 123 years without requiring adjustment. Right? That's, that's an incredible amount of information that has to be programmed not in software, but in hardware. You're programming that in hardware. If you've ever seen the back of a mechanical watch, you'll have noticed the tiny intricate cogs and wheels ticking in perfect synchronicity. It's pretty mesmerizing. But the ability to encode information into a mechanical watch isn't just what captures Mike's interest. In high horology, a lot of the focus is on recognizing that this is an obsolete technology, right? You can always do way better with your Apple Watch or whatever. So what is the connection that you can build? And aside from the fact that for me, there's something beautiful about the, or, or attractive about the tangible nature of a mechanical system that looks like it's alive. It has this torsion pendulum that looks like it's a beating heart. It feels like a living thing. It's also a vehicle for conveying beauty as conceived by the watchmaker. So, I mean, I have, I have one watch that I'm, I'm actually wearing right now from a manufacturer called F.B. Jorn, where it's, it's a simple watch, it's time only. So it's three hands, uh, you know, hours, minutes, and seconds. But the architecture looks unlike anything else. And the balance wheel, the torsion pendulum, doesn't look like it's connected to anything. It looks like it's just oscillating without any connection to any gears whatsoever. Because in his uh, design conception, he wanted to hide all the gears I love this mix of, of technical with beauty because, you know, again, it's all about human experience in my view. And uh, what better way to mix the two things together than you know, something I can carry around uh, with me. But the real insight for me in what captures Mike's attention about high horology is also what makes his business Q-Control so fascinating. And that is control engineering. The one last point of connection there 
is that what Q-Control does in terms of stabilizing unstable hardware via control engineering, it actually has an analog in watchmaking. It's called the tourbillon. It comes from the 19th century when men would wear pocket watches in their breast pockets and they were always, you know, pointing in the same direction and gravity would stretch the spring and distort the timekeeping. So the tick would, would slowly change because the spring is getting pulled by gravity. So Breguet, a very famous watchmaker, figured out a way to dynamically stabilize that by taking that pendulum and rotating it so up was always changing, if you will. That's kind of the same. It's very similar to what we do at Q-Control. We dynamically stabilize quantum systems so that they are immune to the outside influences. And what that means is if I wear a tourbillon wristwatch, that means I, I have a manifestation of my whole career in a beautiful piece of artwork that I get to wear and carry around with me in metal on my wrist. So I, I really enjoy that tangible connectivity to this field that otherwise feels very cold and esoteric and quantum. Mike has spent the last 20 years developing his knowledge in quantum physics and quantum technology, but it wasn't really a predetermined plan. At first, as it happens, Mike did what he thought all good boys from Long Island, New York should do and become a medical doctor, enrolling at Pennsylvania University. But things didn't exactly go to plan. I was sitting in my second semester of organic chemistry and um, I just got up out of the lecture one day and I said, I'm done with this, right? It was, it was so uninteresting to me. It was just memorizing reaction pathways. And it was, you know, you, you start with some precursor materials, you need to get to some end result. And there are lots of different ways you can do it. You just need to memorize all the different recipes. And that was just so unbelievably boring to me. And I said to myself, you know, if this is what's required to be a medical doctor, um, of course, at the time I wasn't savvy enough to know it actually is just politics and whatever. If that was what was required, I wasn't interested. He quit and instead decided to spend his time at university exploring his broad interest in experimental and exploratory sciences. I liked studying physics in, in high school and then into the beginning of my time at university. I think, you know, having the right mentor as an undergraduate was really important. I had a fantastic undergraduate supervisor who did exceptionally interesting research on nanoscale materials and how uh, they would conduct electricity, say, or conduct heat. And I was a bit taken by uh, the kinds of questions he was answering and the, the kinds of techniques that he and his team were developing and probing these materials and applying them to new problems in electronics or in basic physics or in sensing. And I was really interested in joining that pursuit. Um, and, and I did try other things. Um, I, I worked in a, uh, in a neuroscience laboratory for about a year, and it was actually quite uh, exciting work, but I did not enjoy dispatching animals every day. And I saw it done once by the big boss in the lab. And so I watched the big boss dispatch a mouse for an experiment and he was not in practice. And it was a horrible thing to watch. And I decided I would not pursue a, a career in biomedical research if that's what I had to deal with every day. And it wasn't a deep moral opposition to animal-based research. I thought it was important. We're learning important things, but uh, it was just not well handled. And I didn't feel like I should expose myself to that every day. And just as the exposure to different academic fields from neuroscience to nanotechnology was proving fascinating, so too were the physical laboratories that Mike spent his time in. And the one that seemed the least appealing was the quantum computing lab. I think what I was struck by was what a mess it was. It was in the basement of a building in, on campus at the University of Pennsylvania. That basement location was strategically chosen because it's more vibrationally stable, that the building is more stable if you're underground. But it was, uh, it was old and, and uh, a little disheveled, and there were cables laying everywhere. And uh, it was interesting and exciting, but it was a giant mess. And uh, all the beautiful things that you see in, in an optics lab maybe familiar with some photographs of big, big metal tables with these uh, arrays of little mirrors and lenses on posts. All of that is buried inside the refrigeration systems, really, that allow you to bring nanoscale electronic devices down to very low temperatures and then access this unusual physics. So all you see is the mess around it. That was until he began working on his PhD in quantum physics and discovered just how beautiful the labs could be. What did in fact strike me about the lab in which I did my PhD was that my advisor at the time 
put a lot of attention on design and making sure that the space was actually beautiful and not just well constructed to be functional, but actually well constructed for the humans who occupied it. And when I established my own laboratory, I was very heavily involved in the development of an entirely new building that was purpose-built for the kind of research that we do. And part of what I led was the design and fit out of all of the research laboratories. And, uh, you know, mostly those were technical performance specifications. But when it came to my own laboratory, that carried over into design elements. So there was, for instance, um, we made these giant banks of drawers with drawer pulls that extend all the way across the front face of the drawer. And it makes these beautiful lines that you can look at as you enter the lab and they run all the way down the length of the whole laboratory. I think design should be important to everyone because, you know, it's about the way we experience the world. Everything we do is about human experience, whether it's science or it's politics or whatever else. And it doesn't make sense to me to say that one part is shut off from the other. Human experience is endemic to what we do every day when we go into the laboratory. So why shouldn't we enjoy it? Why shouldn't there be physical beauty in the experimental hardware we build? I I draw great satisfaction from that. And it's not so much that cleanliness per se is what we go after, but the cleanliness helps reveal uh, how much beauty there is in the lab that otherwise gets masked by just messes of wires. I've been lucky to visit Mike's lab at the University of Sydney. It is beautiful. The length of the internal grey space corridor has these gorgeous orange window panes. And the more I asked about the building, the more I was reminded that this wasn't just any lab. The research labs have high-precision air conditioning designed to maintain room temperatures stability to within 0.1 degrees by replacing all of the air in the room every 63 seconds. The floors of the laboratory float, meaning that the concrete slab the lab is built upon is entirely decoupled from the building superstructure, which creates a low-vibration, stable environment. And on hearing this, I thought, ah yes. This is a quantum computing lab. But back to Harvard for a moment. Harvard was very special, although I have to admit it was colored by my own mental biases about what I expected it to be. It is special in that it's a place where everybody that you see, no matter where they are, is thinking about something really interesting. I was in the physics department, which is one of the best physics departments in the world. I was working on absolutely cutting edge stuff, but then you know, the physics department was right across a, a quadrangle from the law school. So over there was Harvard Law and you know, people like Elizabeth Warren were faculty members there. And then across Harvard Square, you had uh, the Kennedy School. So at the Kennedy School of Government, you have many former politicians and current politicians on visiting fellowships. I mean, it was, it was really an incredibly dynamic place and so exciting. What I discovered later, which was completely invisible to me at the time, is that Life in that part of of Boston called Cambridge, Massachusetts, is extremely transactional. Everybody there comes for their two to four, maybe six year program if they have a long PhD, and then they go. And the result of that is that everything just stays the same because people don't get bored (laughs) of the restaurants or the bars or whatever. So there are restaurants there like Charlie's Kitchen, which has been there for, you know, decades. All these, all these places, and they're terrible, right? They're really not good. It's just that they stay for so long because the, the people who live there come in and go. And so I was really taken by how static it was when I went back some years later. But at the time, it was, it was an incredible place. Uh, it was just unbelievably cold. Yeah, that was the worst part. It was so cold. And after completing his bachelor's in physics, Mike started work towards his PhD without really ever having a grand plan. I was not considering at all what my long-term career trajectory would be. It was not, oh, I want to be an academic. It was, I am interested in pursuing this opportunity to really learn about science and to, to be a practitioner of science. And in order to do that, the PhD is the next step. And uh, I read sometimes that people say, oh, it's, that's, a, that's a bad idea. You should go and have some experience. I actually, I don't agree with that at all. I think irrespective of what your long-term career trajectory will be, just continuing your education and taking the opportunity while you're young and have as few responsibilities as possible to just do as deep a dive as possible into uh, some you know, scientific question. That's a really wonderful thing. If you have the ability to do it, if you are in that privileged position, if you will, like that's, it's, a, it's a great time to do it and a great way to proceed. 
So in the spirit of Mike's passion for continuing education, and because I've managed to say the words quantum computing, physics, and nanotechnology without explaining any specific terms, I give you the Quantum 101 from a genuine world expert. Okay, here's the Quantum 101. Physics deals with the way the whole universe works, um, from really big things like galaxies down to really small things like atoms and, and the things that make up atoms in quantum physics is the set of rules that governs the universe on very small size scales. It talks about how matter behaves, how individual particles of matter are called atoms or the constituent components, protons, electrons, neutrons, how they behave. It was born out of a lot of experimental observation, actually, that gave some very strange results. Um, and, and Einstein was one of many people who was instrumental in laying the groundwork for this in the beginning of the 20th century. It eventually became a mathematical theory that had in it some really, really weird predictions. Now, at the surface level, it was from the beginning very, very accurate in explaining the unusual things that we would see. Like if you would shine light on an atom with many different colors, certain colors would get absorbed and other colors wouldn't get absorbed. Or if you would excite an atom, certain colors would emerge and others wouldn't. Now, why is that? Why isn't it just all colors? Why isn't it the rainbow color? Um, these things were well predicted by uh, early quantum theory, and this turned out to be related to the structure of atoms. Uh, quantum physics explained originally why atoms are the way they are. So every time you draw a picture, you see the cartoon of the, the nucleus within the electrons whizzing around in the spirals like in the beginning of the Big Bang Theory. That's a cartoon representation of quantum physics. But in addition to that kind of explanation, there, there was this stuff that just seemed too weird to be real. And we, in, in the vernacular, we'll talk about quantum systems can be in two places at once, in air quotes. Or we say that, uh, you know, you can have this thought experiment where you have a cat in a box and the cat is both alive and dead at the same time until you open it. It's called Schrodinger's cat. You know, these weird things were for a long time conceived to be nothing more than mathematical curiosities. And, um, you know, the fact that half the theory was really accurate and some of the other things that emerged were just too weird was okay, right? And people said, well, the math is just weird. Um, but then it turned out in, in the 1980s, really, that a whole series of experiments demonstrated that all of the weirdest stuff, things that we now, that we call quantum superposition or entanglement, um, these things were real and we could access them in the laboratory. Uh, so, this led to a whole spate of Nobel Prizes, including a Nobel Prize for my former boss when I worked at an agency called NIST in Boulder, Colorado, a guy named Dave Wineland won the prize, because he was able to isolate in experimental settings just one atom in a trap, and then to probe the quantum mechanical behavior of that single atom. This is what I do in my academic lab today, uh, trying to build technology with that. But after we gained insights into the fact that, okay, this stuff is real, all the weird stuff that we thought was just freaky math, you can actually get access to it. Well, then a new question arose, which was what could we do with it? And the discipline of quantum technology is focused on trying to use all of that weird stuff as resources to power new kinds of tech. That's what I do. Mike explained that it's important to visualize something quite different from just a regular computer. Though they both encode and process information, they're fundamentally different. It's often described as being as different from today's supercomputers as those supercomputers are from an abacus. It fundamentally works in a different way. So all the, all the rules or most of the rules of computer science don't actually apply in the way we build these machines. Now, the, the most important thing is that like in regular computers, we try to encode information and we do that with the quantum analog of uh, bits. So a bit is the zero or one that we use to encode information in your conventional machine. We use quantum bits, qubits, because we're not very clever at coming up with funny names. And when we encode information into a quantum bit, that information obeys the rules of quantum physics. Okay, I'm going to recap the parts that I initially was like, what? When I first learned about the concept of quantum mechanics and how it relates to quantum computing or really anything relating to quantum at all. A classical computer uses bits that are like switches. They are either in the on or the off position. 
This is generally referred to as a one or a zero. And all of the apps, the photographs that you take, the programs that you use are ultimately made up of these bits in some combination of zero and ones. Quantum computers use bits too called qubits, like Mike mentioned, but instead of being binary, either on or off, they can be in what's called superposition, being somewhere on the spectrum of both on and off. Now, Mike would want me to point out at this point that the English vernacular doesn't really capture what's actually going on with qubits, because it's just only really understandable in math. But all we need to know is that qubits aren't only binary. There is also a thing called quantum entanglement where you link two quantum bits together that is important, but we're on a schedule, so I'm going to breeze over it for now. But it's important to know that with all of this, there are just fundamentally different things you can do with a quantum computer. If you have, let's say, 100 bits in your computer, you can represent one number, and that number could be 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, lots of zeros, and then a 1, or zero, 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 one, zero, and all those other possibilities. It could be one of those. According to the rules of quantum computing or quantum physics, your quantum computer can uh, simultaneously represent all of those different possibilities of zeros and ones on all the different quantum bits all at the same time. That means that problems that have been very, very hard for conventional machines actually, in some cases, become very easy if you have a different paradigm in which you write algorithms. The most famous example of a very hard mathematical problem that becomes very easy with the use of a quantum computer and some specially designed algorithms is one called prime factorization, which currently is the basis of all public encryption systems in the world. Anywho, now we've learned all there is to know about quantum mechanics, let's just get our visualization straight and correct a big misconception for the record. There's actually a lot of different approaches to make quantum computers, right? People will see images that come from some high-profile industrial teams uh, at IBM, say, where they show pictures of all these wires suspended from platforms and things. That's actually not the quantum computer at all. That's just the refrigerator. Uh, but it, it makes the better picture. The two dominant technologies right now are either special electrical circuits made of uh, exotic materials called superconductors that have to be cooled down to very low temperatures. The other dominant technology is what I use in my academic team. This is called uh, trapped ion technology. So we actually confine individual atoms in a special kind of electromagnetic bottle. And uh, then we can shine laser light onto the atoms to either measure the atoms to determine whether they're there, just like you know, light bounces off your face when you have a camera flash and you capture the camera, but also to manipulate the quantum mechanical state of the atoms. You can do that with laser light. So the two labs look very different. In the superconducting world, you have this giant refrigerator which dominates everything and, and all, the, all the cool stuff is inside. With us, you have a very steampunk-looking ultra-high vacuum system, which has big bolts that hold it together and windows and laser beams coming in and out and all sorts of optics on our tables, and then a giant mess of wires that uh, wrap electrical signals around uh, to different classical components. But in general, you should always think these things are room-sized. These are big systems with lots and lots of supporting infrastructure. And, uh, well, mine always looked the best because we put a little bit of design flair into it. And this is where Mike's horizons began to shift from being purely academic. My academic career has been based mostly on trying to figure out how to put quantum systems to work. And our focus has been on a discipline that's called quantum control engineering. By background, there's a class that's just called control engineering. Control engineering is the discipline that makes airplanes fly. It makes uh, walking robots stay upright. It makes autonomous vehicles not crash into things. It makes drones uh, able to form formations and uh, fly stably. Control engineering makes everything work. And we have been very interested in developing techniques to make quantum things work, to make them perform useful tasks. Because there really is a big challenge in the community, we don't necessarily hear about that much, that, that the hardware, the, the physical systems that we use to build quantum computers or other kinds of quantum technology are, are really unstable. 
And, and just for illustration, the transistors, the switches in your laptop, they can run for about a billion years at a billion operations per second and never be likely to have us the hardware fault where it's supposed to represent a one and instead it represents a zero. It's, it's so extraordinarily unlikely. In a quantum computer, the kind of community average that we talk about is that that time to failure, instead of a billion years at a billion operations, is more like one one thousandth of a second. So this is, this is an enormous gap. And we have, for a long time in, in my academic program, focused on trying to solve that problem. We started to develop a very broad suite of quantum control techniques that improve the performance of the hardware, that stabilize the hardware against the errors and the degradation that we see from a phenomenon known as decoherence, the loss of quantumness, if you will, in, in these systems. That over time, they just get randomized by everything around them, by Wi-Fi and changes in the Earth's magnetic field and all sorts of other garbage. And then they turn into uh, useless classical things, right? So we want to prevent that. We want to keep them quantum and keep them useful. Keeping qubits useful. It could be the tagline for Mike's company, Q-Control. But although he had an inkling that creating real, valuable commercial applications for quantum computers would require a serious software layer to help the hardware layer control the qubits better, it just seemed way, way too early to build a company. I thought for a long time that you know, this was, in a sense, an ideal academic pursuit. And many, many different venture capitalists and consultants and investors and bankers came to me during my academic career, mainly because I've been a little bit outspoken on all sorts of political things, and wanted to know when it was right to start building companies around this. And I, I told every one of them it was too early, and it was not the right time to build companies in this because there's so much research to do. That was until June 2017. Mike had moved to Sydney, Australia by this point and had been a professor at the University of Sydney for seven years. And in June 2017, Mike was invited to attend an international conference bringing business, government and academia together. And I came back from that event, which was really lovely and had quite a good program. And I called one of the venture capitalists I had been chatting to and I said, we need to do this right now. Um, the, it, it was obvious that something was changing in the sector. And that irrespective of my views about how much more R&D needed to be undertaken before the community was really ready for prime time, as it were, the community was moving. Investors were putting in money. And if we were to ever do something where we contributed our expertise in quantum control engineering to improve the performance of hardware in an industrial setting, we needed to move right away. And uh, you know, that was June, July, 2017. The company was formed on paper in October that year, and we took investment November 2nd. We closed that initial round. So, uh, you know, it was a very rapid move from zero to the company. And, you know, a lot of the, the timing in that was starting to transition out of my academic lab, uh, at least part time, and setting up uh, such that the team could continue and the experiments would continue. And I had uh, more junior staff who were running things day to day. But then really beginning in January 18, in earnest, Q-Control was founded and we began our journey of making software products that support the sector, that help make quantum computers and other quantum technologies perform better. So at the simplest level, when you think about the quantum computing stack, you have the hardware, the software, and the algorithms. Mike and his team are making the software that ensures that the hardware performs better and the beauty of the software in this setting is that it has a really large base of potential customers. Q-Control makes products that service a pretty wide range of users. So we have uh, very, very technical products, one called Boulder Opal, which is designed for the people who are building quantum computers and quantum sensors and other kinds of quantum hardware. These are people who are real experts in the hardware and simply want it to perform better. For them, we build tools that give full visibility into the underlying uh, physics and capability in order to deploy control engineering in their hardware. So we can deploy this thing we call quantum firmware, which makes the quantum computing hardware perform better. So we have customers in academia from places like USC and Northwestern. We have government clients. NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, uh, is a customer of ours. 
we have industrial customers. Um, Rigetti is a customer of ours, a, a startup that builds quantum computing hardware. But then we also build products for another class of user. Uh, these are developers or, or software engineers who are building algorithms for quantum computers, but don't actually understand very much about how the underlying hardware works. And that may sound a little strange at first, but it shouldn't be that strange. I, I think about how many coders right now who write even things like operating systems, how many of them really know the quantum physics of PN junctions in semiconductors, right? Almost nobody does, right? So there's been this success in abstracting away the hardware. And for them, we want to do the same. So there's a product called FireOval, which allows those developers to avail themselves of the improved performance that we deliver in quantum computers, uh, but not uh, uh, requiring them to understand anything at all about the underlying hardware, about what's going on at those at those individual quantum devices. And then we have uh, uh, a whole another product which targets the largest uh, class of users. Um, these are people who are students or what we've termed curious technologists, people who maybe come from a computer science background, not a quantum physics background, and are interested in working in the quantum industry but don't really know where to begin. One of our products, called Black Opal, uh, was built as a really beautiful uh, graphical interface, a SaaS product, that helps you build intuition for what's going on inside of a quantum computer. Not detailed technical understanding at the level where you're going to go and build and integrate quantum control solutions to improve the performance of a quantum computer, but you want to be conversant about the problems faced by quantum computers, about what a qubit is and how it works and how quantum logic can be implemented on a quantum computer in an abstracted way. We've worked a lot with this community via customer feedback and, and user engagement and interviews to start building a tool set that helps people begin their quantum journey. So uh, ultimately, we want to make sure that we are contributing to the education, the professional development of this new class of people entering the fields. Uh, and then hopefully, as they become perhaps quantum developers, uh, they'll use FireOpal, or if they become experts in the construction and operation of, of their physical hardware, maybe they become Boulder Opal customers as well. You know, we do a little bit of everything uh, across the stack, but the focus, the core aspect is always making hardware perform better with quantum control. There's an old adage attributed to the legendary American theoretical physicist Richard Feynman, which goes, if you think you understand quantum mechanics, then you don't. Hilariously, in venture fundraising, there's another truism. If you can't explain it, then you don't understand it. How do we reconcile these two concepts? How can you ask a founder of quantum technology company to convince investors of their vision while accepting that they'll never really understand the underlying technology? I'd say it takes a world expert like Mike. Let me start out and say that uh, we do have, in my view, one of the best cap tables in the entire sector. So we're very proud of who is on it, just for everyone's understanding. That includes, of course, SquarePeg. So we're very happy to be a SquarePeg portfolio company. SquarePeg led our Series A. But our earliest investors were Main Sequence and Horizons Ventures. It's the, the family office of Mr. Li Kaxing in Hong Kong. We have Sequoia Capital uh, China. We have Data Collective and Sierra Ventures. And most recently, we added InQtel. Uh, U.S. government-related investor. I mean, this is a, a really extraordinary set of investors. But what's common between them all is that even though they are financial investors, these are not strategics like from a, a big enterprise or industry partner. Even though they are financial investors, they are not the kind of investors who would typically invest in a super short time horizon note-taking app or mobile wine sales app or something like that. These are organizations that, at their core, want to build the future of technology. That's the way I look at them right now. Obviously, they have diverse portfolios and they do all sorts of different things on different timescales, but all of them embrace the idea that some technologies take a long time to build, but they're worth it. And you know, industry can be the, the right setting for certain kinds of activities. You know, a lot of what I do in Q-Control could never, ever be done at a university. But every single one of them has understood where we are. We have a, a core value in the company to be trusted. And that means in our academic or our scientific community, but also among investors, that uh, no one who's an investor 
should have to uh, hold their nose and invest in a company run by a charlatan in order to be an advanced technology. And unfortunately, that happens a lot. Uh, it's happening a lot right now. We see it with certain companies that have just gotten themselves in a lot of trouble in, in the U.S., not in our sector. But, uh, you know, I, I've always wanted to be a trusted player in the broad community and finding investors who understood what we wanted to do and supported the vision and mission and also, of course, saw the, uh, the economic potential of what we were trying to do uh, in terms of uh, overall impact. I mean, that was really important. I, I had, in fact, talked to many different investors. Like everyone, we had a lot of no's, right? And the no's were almost always linked to, we're not sure where the industry is going to go, right? So what that means is that those investors don't necessarily have either the stomach or the fund dynamics to support a decadal play. And that's very much what we are. So all of our investors know that this is a 10-year minimum run to really see this through. And so that means, you know, the, those wise uh, VCs will have set aside follow-on funding, right, in their early uh, funds in order to make sure that we can continue to raise. And as uh, obviously, if we're successful, not if we're falling apart. But, you know, that doesn't work for everybody. I do understand that. <laughs> what has been interesting is that in, in the earlier part of Q-Control's life cycle, there was a bit of a irrational exuberance in the community about where quantum technology was going and what the timelines to quantum computing uh, really were. Now, it's important to understand that it, it is a decadal play. And we're talking about maybe five to eight more years before a quantum computer does something useful, right? Before it does something that is economically relevant to execute on a quantum computer as opposed to just you know conventional cloud compute server or whatever. That's, that's a long time for a lot of people, but not everybody understood that. And that comes from both their uh, inadequate understanding, but also some questionable sales pitches uh, that have come from various players. The result is that we had a lot of financial investors who were not really the kinds that would typically embrace those long time horizons. And yet they really wanted to get into quantum computing, right? It was the zeitgeist in the, in the investor community. They wanted to get in. And so I did, in fact, talk to some of these organizations, and it was rarely pleasant. I had one time, I won't name the fund, but I had a partner and a, uh, a more junior person, an associate, or actually two associates on the call. And I was talking about Q-Control and what we were doing and uh, the problems we were solving and what we had built so far, what we were about to build, et cetera. Um, they started challenging me on timelines and I was giving my five to eight years and I was talking about the strategy we have to bridge that where we do acti we, we have activity to support the development of the sector so we can make money before quantum computers become useful and we also have activity in other verticals like quantum sensing and defense and precision navigation and uh, the associates uh, really challenged me not on my company not on my technology but on, you know, on what basis would you say it's going to take five to eight years? I have read a lot of work in this field. And, it, you know, we're going to be factoring large numbers within 24 months. You don't understand anything you're talking about. And it was just this exceptional arrogance of the uh, uninformed junior venture uh, analysts. It was a giant turnoff. I, I said, thank you. No, thank you to that fund. But it, it was not completely atypical. We, we did see a little bit of... Uh, but it's a Dunning-Kruger effect among a certain class of investors with quantum computing in particular. A lot of those stick in my mind because those are the people who made the wrong investments or may lose their shirts because they really didn't understand what the industry dynamics were, but they were utterly convinced of how uh, superior their intellect and, uh, and understanding of the field dynamics were. If you recall our episode with Lad Wallach, the founder and CEO at ADOC, one of the things he had to prove to prospective investors early on was that he could make the mindset transition that accompanies a leap from being a lab researcher to a commercial CEO. And Mike shared how he considered the utility of both environments in advancing quantum control engineering. One can do a lot in academia, but academia has bounds, right? You are limited by the grant cycle. You, you never have the ability to leverage grants and use internal funds to grow or to hire certain classes of people. Pretty much no funding agency will fund you to bring in support staff, uh, software engineers, the kinds of people who really make individual R&D projects turn into capabilities that can be really broadly shared. This is, I mean, it's a common lament in our sector that there's just no support for it. And frankly, the scales of money are, are 
small, right? Even my academic team, which is exceptionally well-funded, has a lot of uh, defense and intelligence community support much bigger than say the conventional Australian Research Council grants, which are only like 200K uh, maximum per year. You just can't do very much with it. And if you combine that, which is just a reality, with the fact that universities are extremely slow and extremely bureaucratic, plus the fact that the kinds of questions I wanted to answer were straying further and further from understanding the nature of reality, which is you know, understanding the truth of the universe is what we do in physics, it's what we do in science, it's what we do in academia. Moving away from that towards, you know, let me see if I can solve a, a shorter term problem that has high impact. Well, it just meant that it wasn't the right setting. And I, I wanted in a sense to build Q control to be everything that a university couldn't be. And that ranges from the ability to move extremely fast. I made five job offers within two days, and it typically takes nine months to make an appointment in the university, to the amount of money we raised, uh, over to the kinds of questions we answer and the products we build. Like everything was, was designed to be uh, a complement to the academic research. The academic lab continues. It continues answering fundamental questions in that long-term research environment. Uh, in fact, Q-Control collaborates with my academic team and we, you know, has supported a lot of new scientific outcomes uh, by the products and the tools that we build. But it was just the right time to do something in a different setting. If you ask any founder what the hardest thing to do as a founder is, almost all of them will say building a team. Mike faces a particularly unusual recruitment challenge because not only does he have to hire those who can help him build and grow a technology company, he's hiring actual quantum control engineers and meshing together cultures from the academic and professional worlds into one functioning organization has been Mike's enduring challenge. The team at Q-Control is the strongest in the world when it comes to quantum control engineering. We have the world's largest concentration of experts at the PhD level or equivalent in quantum control. Uh, it's 21 members of staff in that area. And then that's matched by another about 18 who are on the product side. So software engineers, designers, product managers, conventional uh, software engineering positions. Now, this, this makeup is actually quite different than what you'd see in most of the other companies in our sector. Most of them just take the founder who's probably an academic and replicate, you know, just hire more and more quantum physicists with similar backgrounds. We, we deliberately did not do that. Um, in fact, my first hire was a non-quantum CTO because I knew we had to build software and I had never built software before. And my second hire was head of design because I knew that design was essential in the products and the positioning for our company. Now, yeah, recruitment is really hard. I would say maybe the funny thing is that it's easier on the quantum side than it is on the conventional software engineering side. Because on the conventional software engineering side, the culture is very transactional. People will come to a company, they'll bail after two years. Often they don't give a crap about the success of the thing because they're working in a giant bank and they're one of a billion different front-end developers and they're making outrageous sums of money building mobile apps for banks. Finding people who are really excited about doing something new uh, willing to take very high compensation, we pay really, really well, but also maybe not as high as what you get in a bank for the benefits of a community of uh, higher talent individuals working on higher impact problems. That was the biggest challenge in the filter, right? We had to find people who really embraced what we want to do. Founders will often say this kind of thing. And what they mean is we want to pay a lot less. That's not at all what we mean. We pay a lot. We pay way more than academia. We pay way more than market rates because we want the best people to feel happy and comfortable working with us and not always be looking for side hustles or other opportunities. But getting people who really shared the, you know, the commitment to the problem was different, right? In, in academia, in science, scientists are known to just kill themselves in their research, right? I worked in my PhD routinely 100 to 110 hours a week, seven days a week in the laboratory, go home at like 10, 11 p.m. on Saturday night, right? Because this is what you did. You just worked. And that's not that uncommon. A lot of people in science will do this because they're motivated internally to uh, you know, achieve some success in whatever their research problem is. That internal drive was uh, something I understood in most academics. Now, we weren't looking for people who we could exploit and make work you know, all hours of the day but we were looking for people who were internally motivated to really deliver big, exciting things 
instead of just having the, you know, well, you know, five o'clock whistle blew, so I'm out and I don't care if the mobile application fails uh, and, you know, 10,000 customers can't use it. You know, uh, getting the culture right that way was a big challenge. On the academic side, there was a separate challenge, which is most academics, aside from not understanding how industry works, right? Uh, but that's something you can teach. Most of them don't have any transactional nature in what they do, right? So they, they say, well, oh, I, got a, uh, I got a research fellowship. The fellowship is for four years. And so, you know, I'll talk to you in three and a half years if they've just started. And the idea of changing positions and taking new opportunities, even if they have two or three times the money, this is just not how most academics think. And so it took a little while to really get momentum in the team. But we were fortunate that my first quantum hire was a guy named Michael Hush, who now is the head of quantum science and engineering. He had been a postdoctoral research fellow. He did his PhD at the ANU, really a card-carrying uh, quantum control engineer. And uh, he had the right mix of background in writing software and theoretical quantum control. And then his network was very heavily leveraged from ANU to bring in a lot of very, very high talent people. And then we, because we were a first mover, you know, Q-Control is the first VC-backed quantum tech company in Australia. We gained a lot of uh, you know, market share or mind share, if you will, in, in the Australian tech ecosystem. And that meant that we became a pretty attractive place for people who had either uh, gone overseas for a postdoctoral research appointment and wanted to come back or were back, uh, or people who were coming out of uh, R&D programs in Australia, or people who had left uh, quantum physics and worked at you know, conventional engineering firms for a while, but wanted to move back into the sector as they saw it taking off. So we, we've become a really prime destination. It's something I'm very proud of. It has much more to do with the staff than it does me. But uh, recruitment is always a challenge, and we face some very unique challenges, uh, but it is certainly not one that uh, holds us back in any real way. One of the first things that struck me about Mike when I met him, observant creature that I am, was that he's clearly American and also a literal world expert in quantum mechanics who moved to Australia to practice his craft. And I naturally asked how he ended up here. It's funny, you know, this is a very common question. Why Australia? And it always comes from Australians. Um, Australians have like the worst self-esteem when it comes to position on the global stage. Uh, Australia has an exceptionally strong research community in this field. And it's by happenstance and by strategy, but it's real. So I was funded during my PhD through a big program sponsored by the United States Army Research Office. In the US, uh, military agencies like the Army Research Office fund most basic science. So it's very different than in Australia. I was part of that program. It had more or less every major team all around the world that at the time was uh, active in, in quantum computing. I was just a lowly PhD student, but you had all these you know, really high highfalutin professors uh, going around and the Australian team was there. And I got to know a few people from the Australian side when I was uh, at those reviews. Uh, uh, Aussies are known to be good at the, uh, at the bar after the meeting. So uh, we all had a, a great time at these, at these meetings that were always in really interesting places, Colorado and California and wherever. And as I got to know one of these, uh, these people, a guy named Dave Riley, he invited me uh, to come to Sydney for a couple of months and do some research together. So I came in 05. I had a magnificent time. We did great science. I learned a lot about the different techniques that were used by that team. Uh, we wrote a technical manuscript together as a result of, you know, eight weeks of work, which was really exciting. But uh, uh, a, a little bit of Sydney stayed with me. Uh, I find the, the place to be really beautiful and the community is wonderful. And, um, you know, four or five years later, when an opportunity came up, I got a tenured position at, uh, at Sydney to start my own academic team. So I moved in, in March 2010. It was March 5th I arrived and began my journey here. But it really was about how good the research community is in Australia. And I wanted to know how Mike thought he had progressed as a founder of Q-Control. What did he have to become really good at to do his job? I'm hesitant to say I've become very good at anything. Um, I can tell you for sure what I've had to work on. I work really hard to make the company the exact inverse of everything I despise about big corporate culture and you know big university bureaucracy. That means that we don't have an HR department and we will never have an HR department. 
There will never be anybody who works at Q Control as long as I'm in any way involved. That is HR because I think HR is like the most evil part of of modern industry. We clearly have a commitment to supporting our staff and staff development and, and you know management of their you know, payroll and stuff. Um, but getting the culture right such that it doesn't turn into this you know utopia, right? I, I hope some of your audience members have seen. Uh, the show Utopia on ABC. There's a great episode about uh, HR. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. It's all about how HR steers you towards uh, a certain set of faux niceties, but not actually accomplishing anything. And so I think it's essential that you set the company culture right and that you restrain HR as a function to prevent it from fitting that mold. I've had to work on the fact that I'm naturally a rather private person who believes in self-individual motivation. There is almost nothing I like less than motivational nonsense, right? I, I can't stand when some leader tells me how I'm doing a great job or how exciting our field is or whatever. I just can't deal with it. And I had to embrace the fact that not everybody thinks the way that I do and that a lot of people do not feel that they should just uh, naturally be motivated to do the best job possible, that they have to have some kind of external validation, that they need to feel valued and that they're contributing to something that uh, itself contributes value. That's a totally different mindset than what I have. It's not that I'm right and they're wrong. It's just totally different. And I had to embrace that because it means that I have um, uh, a lot of responsibilities to my team to communicate in ways that I wouldn't normally. But uh, I, I appreciate that is not at all what is required in a general leadership position. Um, so I, it pulls me very, very far from my comfort zone. And my team knows this. My team um, understands because I communicate clearly with them that I feel uncomfortable when I'm you know, in a position to talk about how great we are and whatever else. But uh, it, is, it is a necessity, right? That's, it's a key thing when you have this diverse range of people who share very different backgrounds very different educational pathways, very different sets of motivations uh, and, uh, you know, levels of commitment to their specific jobs, right? You know, having this, this kind of engagement from leadership is something that is required. And so I've, I've had to uh, uh, work on that very hard. If you want to learn more about Q-Control or play with Black Opal, the educational tool for students and developers entering the quantum computing field, just Google Q-Control. That's Q-C-T-R-L. Thanks to Professor Michael Biasic for joining us for this episode, to our fabulous producer Rami for helping to make this show, and to you for joining. If you're still enjoying these episodes and you feel like being a generous soul, drop me a five-star rating or review if you can. Thanks and have a great week.